Okay, welcome to our study of 1 Peter. We're looking at chapter 4 tonight, as we, uh, latter half of chapter 4, as we continue. And hopefully we'll be finishing up in a couple weeks and take a break as Brantz will come in and, and begin a series on a review of the New Testament. So the title uh, tonight for our study is for, for the Time is Come. The Time is Come, taken from our text. The Time has Come. We began our study of 1 Peter chapter 4 last week with what we saw was a continuation of his theme of suffering. That's what he's been going through. He's going to be emphasizing, as I mentioned, the latter part of this, of this book um, on the, the challenge of suffering and how to handle suffering. Uh, in fact, as we noted in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 1, it really was following the theme there that he presented in 1 Peter 3.18 where it speaks of Christ's suffering as an example for us. He suffered in the flesh to deliver us from sins and its consequences. And if we are his followers, if we're united by faith in him, then we too should die to sin and live to righteousness. Christ has broken that power of sin that, that sin had over us. He's broken that power. That we might be free to love and to serve and to obey him. That's why he did that. There's an if then. If, if you're in Christ, then he set you free to do that, to love, serve, and obey God. Romans 6:17. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, which we all were, though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And as I said last time, though we are not now actually sinless in our day-to-day life, we all should admit that without any problem, yet if we are in Christ and his spirit dwells within us, then we should what? We should sin less, right? We're not sinless, but we should sin less if we're in Christ. We're in a battle, obviously. We're all in a battle daily against the world, against our own flesh, and against the devil. But in Christ, we can triumph daily. And we know we shall ultimately be victorious in him because it says in the scripture, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, in Romans chapter 8, verse 37. So as Peter exhorted us in the first part of chapter 4, we are not to live as we did in the past in the flesh, according to the lusts of men. Rather, we are to live according to the revealed will of God revealed will of God as expressed to us in his word and as directed by his spirit. If we are in Christ, God's will should be the foundation, should be the guiding light or instruction for all of our life. And this is going to make us, we, frankly, it's going to make us unpopular with the world, right? If we're living for Christ, if we're obviously Christians, being an obvious testimony for Christ, it's not going to make us popular with the world. They're not going to stand around applauding us and saying how wonderful we are. No, they're going to be offended at us because we are an, an, an abject uh, example to them of what, we sh- what they should do, what they should be doing in trusting Christ, and they're not, and therefore they're not going to like us. They may ridicule us, they may mock us, uh, even despise us, but we must not let that change our attitude towards sin or towards holiness. We shouldn't give in and say, well, because everybody else is doing it or because they're making fun of us, we might as well go along with the crowd. Or holiness is so hard, you know, can't we do something else? No, our attitude should be, regardless of what the world thinks, we are living for Christ. We're seeking to honor him. We're seeking to glorify him in whatever we do. We are now heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And that's something that needs to sink into our mind. We are heirs of eternal life because of Christ. That's Titus 3.7. And therefore, we must conduct ourselves accordingly. If we do follow in our Savior's footsteps in seeking to obey and please our Heavenly Father, however imperfectly that may be, that's to be honest, we should not expect to be treated by a sinful, God-hating world any differently than he was, right? I mean, they didn't treat Christ with applause, uh, especially the Jews. John 15, 19, he said, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. 
If you're of the world, the world's going to love you. It's going to get along with you. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If that's not true, if you can go along through life and nobody dislikes you, nobody is, is offended by what you believe or what you state or what you read, then you've got a problem. Are you really in Christ? Are you really living for Christ? We should be, make a difference to those around us. We know the unique nature, if you recall, in chapter 4, verse 6, of a perfectly balanced, what we call a perfectly balanced Semitic parallelism, and how it reaffirmed the distinction between suffering in the flesh and living in the spirit. The one is temporal, whereas the other is eternal. Matthew 10, 28, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. We may be persecuted by men, even unto death. But there's nothing compared to the eternal life that we have through faith in Christ. Nothing compares to that. And that, should, again, should be on our mind. We should rejoice in that. There's nothing to compare what we have in Christ in this world. No matter what our circumstances are in life, be they challenging or be they serene, if we are in Christ, and here's the if-then statement, one of these if-then statements, if we are in Christ, we must look at things then from an eternal perspective, and we need not fear nor worry about what the world thinks of us. If we are in Christ, then we live without worrying about the world. And finally, last week, we looked at Peter's exhortation to redeem the time and use the gifts God has given us in serving the church. And that kind of goes back to our study on the gifts because this is one of the passages we looked at. And in this particular case, Peter doesn't list the gifts. He just said, uh, basically in that text, he just says, you're either a speaking gift or you're a serving gift. Okay, you either have a speaking or a serving gift. So he kind of defines it down just to those two categories. And whatever your gift is, were to use them for the glory of God. All the apostles lived in anticipation of the second coming of Christ. Peter mentions that. Thus, in their epistles, they exhorted believers to be sober, a watchful, lest they are ashamed at his coming. And it's no different today, right? I'm sure all of us would, would rejoice to see Christ coming. We should. We shouldn't be ashamed at his coming. We should delight to see him coming. If we, if we believe in the promise of our Lord that he shall come again, and receive us into himself, then we should rejoice. James 4, John 4, 3 says that. And here's again, an if-then statement. If we believe he's coming, if we're looking forward to his coming, then we should live accordingly. We should not be caught off guard by his coming. We should not be ashamed of his coming. We should live accordingly, according as he lived, in obedience to the Father's commands, that we might rejoice when he comes, and be at peace, and not be ashamed, and worried, and upset, because we weren't doing what we're supposed to do. So, first of all, that means we live to please him, not ourselves. And secondly, as Peter challenged us in 1 Peter 3, 8 through 10, we are to have a fervent love for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to love God and we are to love one another. We are to encourage each other. And that was, of course, what we talked about when we studied the gifts. We are to use those gifts to edify and encourage one another, not just think of ourselves. In fact, Peter quotes, in, uh, Peter quotes from Proverbs 10, verse 12, when he reminds us that love covers a multitude of sins. We are to forgive. If we want to be forgiven, we are to forgive as we are forgiven, and we're to love as we are loved by God. We are to forgive as we are forgiven, and we are to love as we are loved by God with our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's not an easy task, is it? Let's admit it. It's pretty tough sometimes. It's challenging. But that's what God calls us to do. In fact, in the flesh, it's impossible to live that kind of life, a perfect life of loving everyone, forgiving everyone, never holding a grudge, never being upset by people. It's impossible in the flesh to do that. But by the grace of God, we are to walk in the spirit 
and to live a life that honors him and is a blessing to others. Whatever we do, we're to do it all, that in all things, 1 Peter 4.11, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So let's move on to the latter half of chapter 4 and see what God through the Apostle Peter has for us to learn today. The first point we'll look at is what we'll call rejoicing in trials. Rejoicing in trials. And we'll just look at the first two verses here, verses 12 and 13. Peter speaks to these saints who are scattered about the northern parts of Asia Minor, or what we call Turkey today. He speaks as a pastor, a pastor who is loving his flock, is concerned about his flock. Let's read verses 12 and 13. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Exceeding joy. <clears throat> In this sense, Peter is kind of standing beside these persecuted saints and tenderly addressing them as dear friends, as beloved. He's com- concerned about it. He's compassionate. In fact, the Greek word here is a, kind of a, an, ex- ex- an extension of the word agape. It's called, it's, it comes out agapitos, agapitos, which is an extension of agape, which is the highest form of love. So he has a a deep compassion for these fellow saints, for these scattered saints who are suffering persecution there in Asia Minor. And our hearts, our hearts, like Peter, should go out to the saints, our fellow saints, especially those around the world, as we know of, that are suffering for the cause of Christ. They're enduring hardships, some in prison, uh, some in, in, uh, in concentration camps of sorts, some being chased even to death, uh, unto death, and their churches burned down. So we need to have a compassion and a love for them We should frankly lift them up in prayer, constantly praying for the saints that are being persecuted. And if able, support them financially, as God enables you, obviously. Robert Layton, the Puritan, uh, said this. He said, these two verses, 12 and 13, deal with the close connection of sufferings with the state of a Christian and the due composure of a Christian towards suffering. So they they deal with what we're going through and what our composure should be in the midst of the suffering, how we should handle it. We need to go back. And let me do a little history lesson here, review what's happening at this time in history to see why Peter is dealing with this subject of suffering at this time. Okay, this isn't the United States of America. This isn't some idyllic island somewhere. This is the Middle East. This is Jerusalem. This is Asia Minor. And there's persecution going on, severe persecution. This is Nero. Nero's the emperor, right? He's the emperor that, <clears throat> as most believe in his madness, had Rome set on fire. And then once he had done that, <clears throat> the poorer sections of Rome, in order to deflect the hatred of the people for him, he blamed the Christians. He said it was all their fault. The Christians did it. And uh, they're already under, the Christians are already under suspicion, you might say, or looked down upon because of their association with the Jews as, com- as compared to all the pagan religions, which the majority of people at that time were worshiping. So there's this attitude of kind of suspicion. And then once the fire comes and, the, and the, so many people lost their lives and so much property was destroyed, the blame was put on the Christians. And as a result, the severe persecution against Christians began and soon spread throughout the whole Roman Empire. So that's what's going on as Peter addresses this letter to these people there in Asia Minor. Now, the Jews, of course, were used to persecution. They've been enduring it for hundreds of years. Okay? They were used to it. So even the Jewish Christians would not have been totally surprised or totally caught off guard by persecution. Let's put it that way. Uh, they wouldn't have thought it strange to be persecuted for their faith because they had endured that. 
But the pagans or the Gentiles who were converted to Christianity would not have faced that type of ordeal because prior to being a Christian, they would have probably worshipped one of the many gods in the area and Rome tolerated that. It was no problem. There was a pantheon of gods that Roman tolerated, so they wouldn't have been persecuted for their belief in a, in a foreign god. But once they became Christians, now suddenly they're part of this cult, you know, whatever you want to call it, that uh, is, is to blame for the burning of Rome and has done all these other things that people don't like. So now... As a Gentile converted to Christ, they're going to endure suffering that they've never had to before. So this is a difficult thing. So it may be that's why Peter wrote this epistle, primarily to Gentile converts to Christ. And he's thinking of them as he writes this epistle. <clears throat> Excuse me. In any case, should we be surprised at persecution? Should we be saying, well, after all, we're in the United States. We don't deserve persecution. You know, we're, we're good people. Not if we recall what our Savior said in his high priestly prayer, he said in John 7, 17, 14, I have given them your word. That's to all of us. Of course, he's speaking of his disciples, but it's really to all of us. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. The world's going to hate us because we're, in a sense, not of this world. We're citizens of heaven now. In fact, Paul goes on to say in uh, 2 Timothy 3.12, which you may recall from one of Branch's sermons back a few years ago, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now, that persecution may not be, you know, tarred and feathered and burned at a stake in the, in the Roman gardens. It may not be being chased around the countryside, you know, and, and put in prison. It may be insults. It may be denying job opportunities. It may be persecution, you know, verbally by people who don't like you because you're taking a stand for Christ. It may be opposition to your particular position on whether it be abortion or something else. You may have people begin to hate you, dislike you, not associate with you, friends and family, they might say, well, we're not going to have anything to do with them anymore because they're, they're too strict, they're too holy, they're too you know, godly in some way, and that offends them. Rather than give way, though, into panic and fear, Peter instead exhorts his readers to rejoice. Rejoice that you are suffering for the name of Christ. This is in direct contrast to what they would expected to respond to do in the face of suffering. If this is what our Savior exhorts us to do, in Luke chapter 6 and verses 22 and 23. Let's turn there. Luke chapter 6, verse 22 and 23. <clears throat> Maybe a familiar passage. Luke 6, 20, 22, I'm sorry. 22 and 23. Part of the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they re exclude you, or revile you, and when, when they revile you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Note that particular portion of the verse, for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. And there's a good example of how God's people are treated, even God's servants. The prophets were proclaiming God's word, warning the people, admonishing them, and they were what? Were they applauded? Were they said, oh, you're great. Well, we love you. Keep preaching. No, they were in some cases put to death or at least persecuted, put in prison, and other things were done to them. So the prophets weren't popular, neither was Christ, and we shouldn't expect to be popular either if we take a stand for truth. Not only did they in like manner persecute the prophets of old, but our Savior endured suffering for the what? The joy that was set before him. As we see in verse 13 of our text here, Peter states further the motivation for rejoicing in that they participate in the sufferings of Christ. Now, this may sound strange from a man who once balked at the very idea of suffering for Jesus' sake back in Matthew chapter 16. 
But Peter has learned since that time, hasn't he? He's learned what it means to suffer for Christ, to endure suffering for Christ. <clears throat> Excuse me. In fact, you may recall in Acts chapter 5 uh, and verse 40 and 41, that after being beaten by the Sanhedrin for preaching Jesus in Jesus' name, they what? They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame in, for his name. And as Simon Kistemacher points out in his commentary, what a privilege, what an honor for Christians to participate in Christ's suffering. Now, that's not saying that Christ's suffering for sin were incomplete. That's not what we're talking about here. But it speaks rather of us being identified with him. We're identified with Christ as we suffer for his name's sake. We are definitely his. We're not ashamed to be called his, and we're not ashamed to suffer as he did. We enter into his sufferings in that extent that as he suffered, so we are suffering for him and with him because we are his. <clears throat> in fact, our willingness to suffer for his namesake will be rewarded. As Peter says here in the latter part of verse 13, when Christ appears in his glory at his second coming. But remember, though, Christ suffered and died for us, yet he also rose again from the dead, victorious over sin, and sits at the right hand of God in glory. Calvin put it this way. I thought it was good. He said, hence then, this is the whole consolation of the godly, that they are associates with Christ, that hereafter they may be partakers of his glory. For we are always to bear in mind this transition from the cross to the resurrection. And so too, beloved, we should keep eternal glory in mind. As, as I said before, we should keep an eternal spec perspective in mind and know that our sufferings are temporary, temporary compared to the eternal glory, the eternal weight of glory that awaits us in heaven. And uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17, for our light affliction, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. But for a moment, when you think about it, uh, whatever suffering we have here on earth is but a moment compared to eternity. And that's hard for us to grasp sometimes because we think in terms of just day to day. You know, sometimes we think year to year as we look back over our life, but it's hard for us to grasp eternity. But think of it in terms of endless joy, endless relief from sin, endless relief from temptation, and a perfect worship of God compared to what we have today. And that's something that would, should encourage us. What exceeding joy, and that's important. We, we know joy today, and we have our moments of joy and, and happiness, but what exceeding joy, which unbelievable joy is ours when we are in Christ and when we see him face to face, when our salvation is realized. In fact, let's turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. <clears throat> and we'll look at verses 3 through 10. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. <clears throat> Paul speaking here. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was 
believe. What a glorious day. What an unbelievable day that will be. And yet we can look on both sides, can't we? For ourselves, glory. For ourselves, perfect happiness. But for the wicked, perfect destruction and pain and misery for eternity. That's a pretty stark contrast. We should not look lightly on that. We should not look carelessly on that. We should look with compassion on those around us who know not Christ because that is their end if they do not come to know Christ before, this, before he comes. That should be a, 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 a des, give us a desire and, a, and desire to pray and to seek that, their face to know that they might know that Christ alone is their only hope of salvation or else they will face that day of judgment, which we won't. We will face a day of rejoicing and thanksgiving. Um, let's move on now to the second part of our text, which look at verses 14 through 16, and we've kind of put this in the context of suffering. Is it for God's glory or because of our sin? Suffering, is it for God's glory or because of our sin? Peter pauses here, actually, in this portion. He pauses for a moment to clarify his declaration by challenging us to some self-evaluation. Let's read verses 14 through 16. <clears throat> If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this manner. <clears throat> now, he begins again with the word if, and I've mentioned before, it's important for us to look at these if-then statements, okay? If. Be sure that you're being reproached for the name of Christ. If you are, though it be painful, though it be difficult to endure, then you know that you are blessed. You're blessed by him. Though people may hesitate to inflict harm upon you, depending on, I don't know, today's society, sometimes that's becoming less and less true. Verbal insults obviously can also be painful, can't they? When people start calling you names, you know, docking you, doxing you, or doing all kinds of things social media-wise. Our Savior endured those insults when he hung on the cross. When he hung there on the cross, he endured the, the hatred and the vilification, and his disciples also, uh, very often, were verbally assaulted, and eventually most of them were put to death because they preached and taught and prayed in the name of Jesus. So we should not expect any different treatment today, should we? Yet as Peter told us in 1 Peter 3.14, we are blessed, we are blessed, if we suffer for righteousness' sake. And I believe I've quoted them before in the past few weeks. But let's turn over real quick to from the, uh, another portion of the Beatitudes in Matthew. Matthew chapter 5 and verses 10 and 11. <clears throat> We're looking at the Beatitudes, but from a different uh, gospel. But just a couple verses here. Uh, verses 10 and 11 of chapter 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for they so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. A similar text that we saw in Luke. But the point is that we should rejoice. We should rejoice when we are suffering for his namesake. And that's the key there, for his namesake. <clears throat> Not only are we blessed, but it says what in our text? The spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. Incidentally, what does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to be blessed here? Well, Jesus explains that in, really in verse 12 there of Matthew 5, just two verses after we read the Beatitudes. He said, rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. 
great is your reward in heaven when you are persecuted for righteousness sake. To be blessed by God is not only to be given eternal life in heaven, but apparently, according to our text, for those who labor or suffer for Christ's name's sake, there are rewards. Now, we don't know exactly what those rewards are, but there's a promise there. God doesn't make idle promises to, to you know, trap us to come into heaven because we have rewards. No, the rewards for those who are faithfully serving him, who are enduring for the sake of the gospel. Apparently, those who labor or suffer for Christ's name's sake have rewards. And in our current text, when Peter refers to the spirit of glory and of God resting upon us, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit in the one sense and the glory of God in the other. In other words, God's spirit is there to sustain us and to strengthen us as we suffer reproach for Christ. And we are comforted in that we are glorious in God's sight as one of his chosen ones. God looks upon us as his chosen ones. And we're glorious in his sight because he loves us. And he gives us his Holy Spirit to enable us to endure and to be a witness in the times of trial. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, Peter now shifts here in verse 15 of our text to warn us to be sure our suffering is not because of sin in our life. <clears throat> you know, if you happen to run a red light on the way here because you're coming to church and you get a ticket, that's not being persecuted for righteousness sake. Or if you rob a bank because you want to give money to missions and you get arrested and thrown in jail, that's not being persecuted for righteousness sake, okay? Let's make it straight. We don't, we don't get into trouble because we say we are serving God. If it's, in fact, we talked about that a few weeks back. Paul didn't write Romans 13 tongue-in-cheek, you know, kind of, oh, you don't have to obey the government. I mean, after all, they're not righteous. No, he wrote it because it was a standard for us to live. It was a standard for us to live righteously and to give the government no excuse for persecuting us and allow... And, and challenge them to, to be righteous and just in their judgment and to judge the wicked and not the righteous. So when we see this type of, of point that Peter's making, we need to remember that we are, if we're persecuted, it better be for righteousness' sake if we expect God to bless us. If we're, if we're persecuted because of our sin, our foolishness, our recklessness, well, then we should expect it. And God's not going to bless us in that sense. We're going to suffer for, for uh, doing foolish things. <clears throat> but if we are actually serving God, and we endure persecution, well, that's you know, something we can rejoice in because we are suffering for the sake of Christ. <clears throat> Excuse me. Peter mentioned earlier in chapter 2, verse 14, that God appoints kings and governors to punish evildoers. So if we're among those evildoers, we can't complain if we suffer for our crimes. But not only that, we are to, we are to mind our own business, it says here, and not to meddle in other people's affairs. Although we are to love our brethren, and we are, but that doesn't mean we are to put ourselves ahead of them. We're to put their interests above our own, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4. We're not to try and run their lives for them or tell them how to do things and control them in any way. We're to encourage them. We're to use our gifts to bless them. We're to put their interests above our own. We're not to interfere with what God wants them to do. Paul warns against young widows becoming busybodies in 1 Timothy 5.13, and Peter is kind of reiterating it here. In fact, Paul gives a very strong rebuke to such people in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verses 12, 10 through 12. Let's look there real quick. 2 Thessalonians, just a few books back. <clears throat> 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verses 10 through 12. <clears throat> For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command you and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. 
As one commentator said, by interfering in the lives of others, a meddler disrupts the peace and harmony of the local church and community. We don't meddle in other people's lives. Yes, we try and be a blessing to them. We try and help one another. We use our gifts to edify one another. But we don't try and interfere in each other's lives and control each other by our personal interests. <clears throat> so let's strive to love and to help each other, but not control each other. If we do suffer as a Christian, though, as Peter's pointing out, he says we need not be ashamed. In fact, the title Christian, as we knew in Peter's time, was a derogatory title given to believers by those who despise them. And indeed, here the use of the term in 1 Peter chapter 4 is only the third time and the last time that it's used in the whole New Testament. That's kind of amazed me when I read that. Only three times in the New Testament is the word Christian used. The two other times used are in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, where believers were first called Christians in Antioch. And the other time was in Acts chapter 26, verse 28, when Herod Agrippa II mockingly asked Paul if he thinks he can persuade him to become a Christian. So it's, I was surprised that that was the only three times. But regardless, we know what it means. When we suffer for Christ's sake, we may, in order to avoid person, for, further persecution, hesitate to make known our faith. As a result, Peter exhorts them and us, then rather than be ashamed to glory in being counted worthy of suffering for Christ, we should rather proceed and press on, knowing that we're going to be glorifying him and we will be glorified as all. So pray for courage. Pray for courage to defend the faith, no matter what the circumstances might be. Let me quote a brief couplet here concerning shame by Joseph Gregg. He said, ashamed of Jesus, that dear friend on whom my hopes of heaven depend, know when I blush be this my shame, that I no more revere his name. Also, my friends, let's take the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, and make them our own. He said, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now, also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Lastly, we'll look at the last few verses of our text, verses 17 through 19, and we'll look at it from this perspective, which is the title of the message tonight, The Time has come. The time has come. These last few chapter, verses here of chapter 4 have an echo of Old Testament scripture passages that speak of God's judgment on his people and on the world. Let's read verses 17 through 19. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. In the Old Testament, as you should know from reading it, God punished the house of Israel and the house of Judah when they refused to listen to the prophets he sent to them to warn them to flee from sin, especially idolatry. Eventually, though he was patient, very patient, the time came for judgment and they were taken away into captivity, as we know. By contrast, in the New Testament, God's elect, the church, are purged, they're chastened, uh, they're purified by the loving hand of God via suffering. Do you wonder about this? Do you think, well, why would God, you know, why would God do this? Well, if God punished Israel for their wanderings, his people, remember, his people Israel, and let his church, the bride of Christ, get away with things and dabble in sin, would that be right? Would that be consistent with God's pattern? No, he judged Israel because they drifted away from him. They ignored his prophets. They ignored his word. And so he punished them. He chastised them. 
And so we, as a bride of Christ, as a church of Christ, if we dabble in sin, we should expect chastisement. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 5 and 6 says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are chastened by him or rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son, every son whom he receives. The Lord wants his bride to be pure and holy and like silver and gold. Sometimes we need to go through refiner's fire. That's what happens with silver and gold. The rings that we wear, wedding rings and others, if they're pure gold, they were purified to get to that point. They weren't just slung together with a bunch of rocks, okay? They were purified, especially silver is have to be purified a number of times for it to be totally pure. So we should expect a refiner's fire if we are not living for the Lord. Because that fire, that refiner's fire, will burn the dross off and the scum off and make us be holy and pure in his sight. So yet, though we may face God's purifying judgment, we do not have to face the wrath, his wrath for our sins because Christ has done that. That's the glorious thing. However, woe to those who have yet to taste the full measure, as we mentioned earlier, the full measure of God's holy wrath upon their sin, as Peter speaks here. Those who obey not the gospel of God, in other words, who have rejected the gospel, who reject Christ and his atoning work, shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on them. John 3.36 it's foolish to envy the wicked, my friends. It's foolish to envy them, no matter how wealthy they are, how happy they are, how they seem to get along and, and never have any problems, and they live a life you know, without persecution, without suffering. No matter how, what they get away with here on earth, we should not envy them, because their end is destruction. David found this out and set the record straight in Psalm 73, verses 12 through 17. Let's turn there. It's one of our last texts to look at. Psalm 73. Remember this psalm, his glorious psalm of how he realized how good God was to Israel and how ashamed he was of how he had envied the wicked. Look at Psalm 73, verses 12 through 17. Behold, these are the ungodly. He's just described them, how they, their eyes bulge, they get away with everything, they seem to be you know, always happy and full of, of life. And they say, how does God know? And this, there's no knowledge with the Most High. Behold, these are the ungodly. They're always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I will have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I understood their end. And he goes on to describe what's going to happen to the wicked. It's easy for us to see George Soros and Bill Gates and others, these guys living in luxury and wealth and influence, and think, boy, how come they're doing that? Well, they may get their joy and their riches and their happiness here on earth, but we should not envy them because if they do not repent, their destiny is constant, overwhelming, destruction and, and judgment of God for eternity. That's not something we should envy at all, regardless of how much we think they're getting away with. <clears throat> Excuse me. It would do well for us to remember also these words found in Hebrews 10.31. When we consider the end of the wicked, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. A fearful thing. We, it's, it's almost incomprehensible to think of the wrath that would be poured out upon those. And we see the picture in Scripture of um, Lazarus and the rich man and what the rich man is in, in hell there and crying out for God uh, to give him a break and 
there's none. Abraham says, sorry, you have the prophets. And he asks for his brothers to be preached to. And he says, they have the prophets. They have Moses and the prophets. If they don't hear them, there's nobody who's going to convince them. There's an undeniable, miserable picture in Scripture of those who know not Christ and who are entering into eternity without him. A fearful thing. Let me read you a passage from the Puritan um, Robert Layton on this verse 17 here in our text. Let me read the text first of all. In fact, I think he quotes it here. Yeah, he does. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Robert Layton says this. There is a perfect, perfect equity in all of God's ways if we only have eyes to observe them. The apostle now sets before his brothers the time for judgment. In these words, there is a parallel with the Lord's dealing with his own and with the wicked. The parallel is in this order, and the measure of punishing. Concerning the order, it begins with the family of God, and it ends with the ungodly. And that carries in it the great difference in the measure. It passes from one on whom it begins and rests on the other with whom it ends and on whom the full weight of it lies forever. It is said in this way, what will, be out, what will the outcome be of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Judgment will not only overtake them in the end, it will also be their end. Let me read that again. Think about that. This is what the outcome is for the wicked. What will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Judgment will not only overtake them in the end, but it will be their end. Endless judgment. They will come to an end in it, and it will endlessly be on them. For it is time for judgment to begin. Indeed, the whole time of this present life is a time of judgment. It is a time of suffering and a time of being purified in the church. Whereas the wicked escape until the day of their full payment, the children of God are in this life chastised with frequent afflictions. And so time, holkerios, that's the Greek, time, holkerios, may here be taken as the Apostle Paul does when he uses the same word, I consider our present sufferings, farbara to nun kerio, in Romans 8.18, I consider our present sufferings not worthy to be compared to the glory that awaits us. It seems to be so implied here that there are particular set times when the Lord chooses to correct his church. The apostle probably means the times of those harsh persecutions that they had just started, had just come upon them because of Nero. These troubles threaten to make believers fall away. But believers, having the grace of God in their hearts, benefited from these hazards and sufferings. They held on to Christ with a firmer grip. They entered into the way of receiving Christ and his cross together. A fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Think of it. If God brings persecutions and trials, yeah, real suffering. I mean, let's be honest. Real suffering, we know of it happening throughout the world, on his people to purify them and strengthen their faith. What will be the judgment on the wicked at the end? Oh, how horrible. How horrible to be the object of God's wrath forever. That's a contrast we should be thinking about when we think of loved ones and those who know not Christ. What a contrast between us who are in Christ, what our hope is, and what their hope is, what their future is. In verse 18 of our text, Peter strengthens this point by quoting from the Old Testament, this time from Proverbs chapter 11, verse 31. If justified sinners are saved and endure great trials and suffering, what will be the end of the ungodly? Paul encourages Christians like these in Asia Minor with these words, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14, 22. We're not saying that someone 
can earn their salvation by suffering. But as we grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord, there is much refining, if we're honest, there's much refining and purifying of us as we go through life that we might be molded more in the image of Christ, right? I mean, we should be honest about that. We're far from perfect. We're far from holy, completely holy. So there's going to be refining done, just like there is with jewels and with gold and silver. Peter concludes this chapter with something similar to an if-then statement. Let me read verse 19 again. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Remember, God is working all things together for our good, Romans 8, 28. He knows our limits. He knows what measure of refining we need. And again, we must keep an eternal perspective in mind, beloved. Even if we are being refined, it may be painful. But we are to commit ourselves to our faithful creator. Commit ourselves to him who sustains us, his creature, day by day, every moment, moment by moment, as the hymn says. He is sustaining us. He is with us. He never leaves us, forsakes us. Jesus himself committed his spirit unto the Father there on the cross, Luke chapter 23, verse 46. Can we do no less? Can we do no less than to commit our souls, keeping unto him who brought us into being, who loved us with everlasting love and brought us to Christ? Secondly, Peter intimates here that we're not only to commit ourselves to God, but we are to continue to do good. We not only commit ourselves to God, we don't just sit down and say, well, that's it, I've committed myself to God. No, we're to do good. We're to live out a life that is pleasing to him. We're to show our commitment by our deeds of love and our obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. This admonition is repeated throughout this first epistle, really. If you look throughout the epistle, I can give you some references. 1 Peter 2, 15, 1 Peter 2, 20, 1 Peter 3, 6, 1 Peter 3, 11, and verse 17. And recall this promise as given to us by Paul in Romans 2, 7. He said, to them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. If you persevere in the faith, if you love God and trust him, trust in Christ, if you persevere in that life, for you there awaits eternal life. Trust God, your creator, beloved, and commit your way to him, and he will be committed to you. He always is committed to you. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That's our whole duty, to fear him and keep his commandments. We're told the Lord will perfect that which concerns us in Psalm 138, verse 8. So trust him, endure for him, abide in him, and he will not forsake the work of his hands or the objects of his redeeming love. Let's pray.